Morning. We are going to finish uh, Philippians 3, and as Jay preached last week, actually went into chapter 4, verse 1, and next week, uh, Matei will be preaching, and then the week following is Resurrection Sunday. And then we'll jump back into uh, the last chapter, final chapter of Philippians. So we are almost done uh, with, with the book of uh, Philippians. If you will, turn there, and sorry, I'm just having some malfunctions right now. There we go. Hey, look at that. We're, if you remember, Jay said we were going to, or I was going to go back into verses 15 and 16, which is really the hinge of the previous verses and the ones that Jay preached on last week. So we're just going to look at verse 15 and 16, well, more in depth. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Last week, Jay spoke about the word, the Greek word, teleos. And he said, while teleos can mean perfect or complete, it can also mean mature. It's a hom homonym, which is a word that can have more than one meaning. We have many of these in English. Take the word fire, for example. Uh, you could say that house is on fire, or blue at brewery pizza is fire. Right? Uh, that might be slang. I don't know if that actually qualifies as a homonym. How about this one? Uh, bear. Oh, that's a heavy burden to bear. Or all of you in Leavenworth know this one. There's a bear, right? So it's a homonym. Same, spelled the same, uh, but has a different meaning. And so just like English, Koine Greek, Biblical Greek had the same. In fact, the word homonym actually originates from the Greek language itself. On top of Jay's translation, he also made a convincing argument about his interpretation. So, so translation tells us what the word is, and interpretation tells us what it means. And he alluded to the fact that it, it wouldn't make much sense for the Apostle Paul, who just said he wasn't perfect, teleos, in verse 12, to now say, let us who are perfect, or teleos, in verse 15. So that's why we translate it as mature. And not only in this passage, but in general, it's very important that we, we don't confuse perfection with maturity. Because perfection is something that God does for us, while maturing, becoming mature, is something we ourselves participate in. Matthew 5, 48, right? Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be complete, be whole. Right? God requires perfection from every single one of us. Yet, it's something that is achieved for us, not by us. In fact, if you remember, Paul began chapter 3 by telling the Philippians, look, God doesn't declare us righteous on the basis of striving for per per perfection. 
Instead, he declares us righteous solely on the all-sufficient work on the one who was perfect, the one who was righteous, the one who is complete, who is Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. should never assume in preaching, especially on the Lord's Day, that everyone here believes, believes that, right? Someone may be asking themselves, how, how in the world can God do that? How can God declare me righteous on the account of what Jesus did when I know I wasn't perfect according to his law? And a beloved him answers that mystery with with great clarity. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. It's the mighty awe of the cross, isn't it? Because you and I both know we aren't perfect. Jesus says you must be perfect. We know we're not perfect. We aren't even close. We are wretched sinners in need of amazing grace. That's why we sing, how sweet the sound, because the the blood poured out on Calvary by our Lord Jesus Christ washed every single one of our sins away. As Jordan spoke today about the Lord's Supper, he made us white as snow, and we know we were not white before we came to Christ. We were with blemish. We were not unblemished. For he who knew no sin became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. And that perfection does not come through our effort. It comes through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's, let's, let's open in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, uh, help us understand the difference between perfection, the difference between maturity, and ultimately, as the passage says, if Paul says those, let all of us who are mature think this way, and if you think about it differently, it says God will reveal it. Well, God, would you reveal it? Well, into whatever truth we've attained, let us live to that. God, wherever we are this morning, by your spirit and through your word, Lord, would you call us to a greater maturity, a greater depth of following Christ than every single one of us are currently doing? And we ask this to your glory, Lord. Amen. Now, that was perfection that we spoke about before prayer. Maturity, on the other hand, which Paul is referring to in verse 15 As I said, it's something that we participate in. For the the lack of a better explanation, quote Jay from last week, who said, the definition of biblical maturity is what? Is pursuing Christ's likeness. In other words, in order to mature as a Christian, you must be actively pursuing Christ. It's active, right? We participate in that. Of course, that begs to uh, 
ask an even more maybe basic question, how can we say we're following Jesus if we're only standing still? You see, that sounds like a good time to uh, insert a family illustration. It's not that bad, babe. It's okay. (laughs) As a parent, and I'm sure probably some of you parents, grandparents can relate to this, there are many times I'll ask one of my children to do something, and they just stand there. And after I repeat myself and ask them to do it again, they still don't move. To the point, I, I, I finally ask them, can you hear me? Right? And they always respond, yes, we can hear you. Then why aren't you obeying me? Well, the Bible asks the same question for those who call Christ Lord yet don't obey him. Right? Huh. I thought I'd put that in there. There we go. Luke 6, 46, Jesus asked, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? So you see, becoming more like Christ, it's not the root of our salvation. Maturity is not the root of our salvation, but, but Jesus and the word of God, and Paul specifically implies that maturity in Christ-like living is the fruit that is produced from our salvation. It's not the root, it is the fruit of our salvation. So we ask ourselves, well, if there's no fruit, is there a root? That's between you and the Lord, right? Or your local church. Now, in verse 15, Paul says, Those who are mature will think this way too. And Paul wasn't the only one who thought this. The writer of Hebrews had a thing to say, uh, one or two things to say about maturity as well. There we go. Number one, the matured never stop their pursuit for the prize. Hebrews 5, starting in verse 11, we'll go through uh, 14. And then pick up in Hebrews 6. The author of Hebrews says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promise through faith and perseverance. Not only am I quoting Jay today, I also really liked when you bolded the main points of the scripture, so uh, that's mine now. So, no, <laughs> I, I, I really liked it. It, it, it helped me uh, travel along, and, and uh, it, was, yeah, it was good. But there you have it. The writer of Hebrews says that the mature never stop 
The mature never stop training. Constant practice. They never stop training themselves until the end. Demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of hope until the end. Which means they never stop their pursuit for the prize. And I think that some people tend to think that when someone reaches the height of an achievement, that person no longer is diligent in training anymore. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth, right? Because those who persevere in their achievements are those who persevere in their commitment to train. If you've ever been to the gym, you know that the most ripped or the strongest or the fittest person in the gym is also what? It's also the most disciplined person. They're disciplined in their workout routines. They're disciplined in their continual showing up to the gym day after day. They're even strictly disciplined in their diet, right? If you're a golfer, take them, for instance. It takes years, years of practice. Learning, swinging that golf club over and over again. Before you can even consider yourself a decent player, I just watched some video that says you have a one in a trillion chance of breaking 80. And then they said, that's how bad all of you are at golf, right? That's hard. And yet, even when that golfer breaks 80, and they, they, they have a great round. Do they stop practicing? No. And in fact, when the best golfers shoot an amazing score on 18 holes, they don't even remember the holes that they did well on. They remember the holes that they did poorly on. Why? Because that's where they know they could have done better and improved. So therefore, they will train even harder for the next time that they play. And if you're familiar with the late Kobe Bryant, if you've ever listened to many of his interviews, he never attributed the success, his success, to his talent. Rather, he attributed his talent and success to what? His strict training. You see, those who excel in worldly activities are those who never quit training. And the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make and the point that Paul is making is the same for those who mature spiritually. That those, they are those, those who are mature are those who remain diligent in pursuing their goal. Paul writes to the Corinthians and explains that athletes train for temporal prizes, but we strive for prizes that are eternal. Therefore, we should be training like them, or even more. 1 Corinthians 9. Pick it up in 24. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, and they do it to get a crown. Therefore, you must run in such a way to get the prize. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Now think about that. Olympic athletes, something I have 
cannot identify with at all, at least in training that they go through. They train their entire lives just to get a chance at competing for a medal that, well, what? That one day it'll mean nothing, right? All the Super Bowl rings that Tom Brady has and all the championship rings that Michael Jordan has, all the majors that Tiger Woods and Jack Nichols has won, in the scope of eternity, Paul says, it will amount to nothing. They get a crown, but it's a crown that doesn't last. Yet Paul says they still put themselves through rigorous training to get it, just to hold on to temporary greatness, right? They know it won't last. We don't take trophies to the grave. say trophies of Christ, trophies of the grace of God, they do rise up out of the grave, though, right? Paul says, we, however, have a prize awaiting us that will never fade. So they go into strict training for a chance to hold on to temporary greatness. Paul says, listen, you should run your race like them because our prize will never fade. Our treasure will never lose its luster, and our reward will satisfy our longings for all of eternity. Longing so great on this earth, we cannot even imagine what that will be like. Now, Paul says we can get a glimpse. If we run our race, those athletes run theirs. By pursuing Christ and Christ's likeness with every fabric of our being, it will inevitably lead to inexpressible joy and maturity in Christ-likeness. And that will give us a taste of the glory to come. Of course, if we do not pursue Christ, then the author of Hebrews says, says what? You need milk, not solid food. If you're not maturing... If you're not pursuing Christ as a Christian, then we're like a baby who has aged way past our deadline to stop nursing and start eating meat. Because even though we've grown in years, the author of Hebrews is saying, but you've never grown in Christ. Therefore, it's time to stop drinking from the bottle. If that's any of you today, Respond to the call of the author of Hebrews and put down the bottle and come to the feast of Christ. The mature pursue Christ likeness. If you think about the preceding verses leading up today in Philippians, in Philippians 3. If you recall a few sermons ago, Paul said, my goal is to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and to share in his sufferings, and to receive the promised prize. And he says, while I have not yet arrived, I work toward that goal because one day I know that I will attain it. And then he says, and the mature will think this way too, verse 15. That's Paul's main point. The mature want to be like Christ. They want to know Christ. They want to be like Christ. They want to pursue Christ's likeness. 
Now, we, we address what it means to be Christ-like by sharing in his sufferings a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to rehash that. And Jay also preached on that last week. Instead, I want to go back to the book of Hebrews, uh, specifically to chapter 6, verse 10, just for a moment, because there's something about becoming more like Jesus that is worth noting from, well, from this verse. Mainly that a Christ-like love serves God's people. That's the Christ-likeness I just want to hit on for this point. A Christ-like love serves God's people. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. What work? The love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints. Who are the saints? They're the holy ones. They're the ones redeemed by the grace of God. They're the ones you're sitting next to right now who have repented and believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The love you've demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. It's a direct reference to the local church. And the application of a Christ-like love is to serve the one sitting you, sitting next to you in the pews, right? We, 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 we're to love the universal church, right? That's Christians everywhere. But we also have this unique calling to love those we are in local fellowship with. And in the last line of verse 10, we see that a mark of maturity is what? It's continuing to serve them. A sign of Christ's likeness is the continuation to serve. Oh, it makes yeah, to serve or the continuation to serve. It makes complete sense because it was our Lord Jesus who said, "What I did not come to be served, but to serve." Oh, which means if we want to look like Jesus, then then we must love His people by serving them. Of course, that's counterculture uh, for our day and age, isn't it? Because the only motivation among our society, and, and we can lump ourselves into that, is determined by asking, how will this benefit me? Yet we see according to the scriptures that a Christ-like love says or asks, how can I help serve you? How can I benefit your life? What do you need? How can I lay down my life to make sure you get the help that you need in this time? We know our need for grace, don't we? I fail at that. Hopefully, the sound of amazing grace has never lost the sweetness. Yet, ironically, thinking back to the culture of motivation, asking how will this benefit me, and those seeking the immediate benefit, well, they ironically lose an eternal reward, don't they? And look at verse 10 again. God will not forget your work. And the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints. What does he mean? God will not forget. Cool. Romans 2 is helpful. God will repay each person according to what they have done. 
He doesn't say save. He says repay. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There's an eternal reward coming for those who pursue a Christ-likeness and love one another. It lasts forever, right? Love never fails, and it's an eternal reward of inheritance that I'm not even quite sure what that inheritance will look like. But it makes sense why the writers of all the writers of the New Testament and the Gospels continually tell us to set our mind on heavenly things, not temporary things. They want us to understand what happens to temporary pleasures of this world. What happens when Christ returns to temporary pleasures? Nothing. They vanish. They're a vapor. They burn up. They're chaff in the wind. your deathbed, even if you are in Christ, do you want to look back knowing that you are about to cross over into eternity and say, man, I passed up whatever treasure I was about to receive for what? Nothing that is following you into eternity. Somehow, we, we, I think we even believe that. And yet we still allow ourselves to be so easily convinced to settle for fleeting rubbish. God offers an, 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 an unending reward. Never goes away. Loved one, don't settle. Don't settle for what's temporary. Pursue Christ and what is eternal. Let's, let's get back to verse 15. And Chapter 3, God's revelation in Christ. It's not exactly an imperative. Verse 15 is, it says, and if you think differently about it, so he, he just said beginning in verse 15, the mature, let the mature think this way too, and if you think differently about it, God will reveal it to you. Reveal what? That to mature as a Christian, you must continue to strive to be like Christ. I guess we're actually going back to Hebrews 5. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For, by, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You ought to be teachers. You've been a Christian so long. You ought to be teaching the word of God by now. That's what he says. Instead, he says, you've been stagnant since you first received the elementary doctrines of grace, which, for the record, are some pretty good doctrines and pretty important doctrines. At this point, you love the plan of salvation. But then why have you never been interested in God's plan of sanctification? Verse 
And that's a problem because God's eternal plan of redemption was meant for us to become more like his son. If politics have done anything good in the last five years, they've given me this quote. Let's fact check what I just said. I said, God's eternal plan for redemption was meant for us to become more like his son. Fact check. Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What does Paul say the purpose of his predestining was? God's purpose of predestining, what was it? To conform us into the image of Jesus. That's the information that, that Paul's referring to in verse 16 when he says, look, if you think differently, right, about sharing in Christ's sufferings, knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, God will reveal it to you if you are in Christ. And Paul's point is, look, he'll reveal it to you. If you haven't come to that realization yet that God wants you to be more like Jesus, then here it is in fine print. Be like Jesus. That's the entire exhortation across the New Testament. Be like Jesus. Epistle of 1 John. John. Whoever says he abides in him. Whoever says he's in Christ, whoever says he's saved, whoever says he's repented and believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and is a Christian, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 Peter 2.21, for this you have been called. What's God's purpose for my life? What's God's will for my life? Well, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. What example? So that you would follow in his steps. Ephesians 5.1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There's a lot of Trinitarian theology in those two verses. We are being transformed into the same image. What image? What image does the word of God say that we are being transformed into? The image of Jesus Christ. And we could just click on more verses over and over and so on and so on. And so when we get into Philippians 3... And and we move on to verse 17. Paul says, okay, so here's your application. Join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Same thing he said in Corinthians uh, 11.1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's rather simple, isn't it, what Paul's saying? If you want to learn how to be Christ-like, then you must find an example of someone who is like Christ. God will reveal it. And so I should say that the Christ who is revealed, I'm only referring to the Christ who's, in, who's within the boundaries of Scripture. 
I have to make that clear because well, you know as much as I do that it's, it's staggering to see how many professing Christians seek to follow, follow a religious example that looks nothing like Jesus, at least not the Jesus revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, in the Bible. They, they gravitate toward false teachers who are, who are those who do not walk in the footsteps of Christ. And instead, they go follow whatever teaching suits their lifestyle, suits their, their desires, their itching ears, as Paul says. Well, that's why it's written in, in, in verse 19 of chapter 3. And Jay preached on that last week. He says their God is their belly because their choices are determined by whatever fills their desires. Instead of making choices as Jesus did, who did what? He determined to do, his actions were determined to do whatever pleased the Father. Paul wants us to walk in those footsteps. The Word of God wants us to walk in those footsteps. And in fact, we can see in Paul's prayer to the church of Colossae, in verses 9 through 10, chapter 1, this was Paul's prayer. For the church. He says, we have not stopped praying for you. What's your prayer, Paul? Well, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Paul says, God reveals knowledge, wisdom, and understanding through the Spirit. And why? Why? Verse 10. Why does, God, why does Paul say God reveals it? So that we, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Do you want to be like Jesus? If so, when you wake up tomorrow morning and every morning you wake up after until the return of Christ, Submit every decision you make to be obedient to the will of God. That is what Jesus did, and to be Christ-like means that is what we must do too. It's what our Lord meant when he said, whoever wants to follow me must do what? They must pick up their cross and deny themselves. You wake up tomorrow morning, deny the flesh, follow Christ. And finally, the mature have learned outside of Christ, there's nothing worth pursuing. Verse 16, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Well, since we're on the mature, the mature have attained one truth for certain. The Christian life is one that is spent pursuing Jesus. We pursue him at the cross for the forgiveness of sins. We pursue him at the tomb to remind us that death is defeated. 
We, pers- we pursue him at the heavenly throne to remind us that no matter what happens in this world, he is in control. We pursue him for bread and we pursue him for life. We pursue him for grace and we pursue him for mercy. We pursue him just to know him and we pursue him to worship him. We pursue him for help and we pursue him for hope. We pursue him for our identity alone and we pursue him for a righteousness that is not ours but belongs to him. We pursue him for joyfulness, and we pursue him for holiness. We pursue him for humility, and we pursue him for glory. We pursue him for peace, and we pursue him for unity. We pursue him to be like him, and we pursue him because we love him. And then we mustn't forget we pursue him because he first pursued us. The Christian life is in pursuit of Christ constantly because we know outside of Jesus there is nothing else worth pursuing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, you sent Christ Christ ascended after his perfect ministry and all-sufficient merit to die for our sins, to rise from the dead, to ascend to the throne, and then the Spirit was sent, and the Spirit was sent to glorify Christ in us to make it the number one treasure of our heart. And God, your word will not be preached in vain, and I pray this morning, Lord, that through my insufficiency as a man to proclaim your word, that your Spirit would glorify the Son, Jesus Christ, so that everyone here this morning would chase after the Lord. We ask this in Christ's name.